Well, here we are in 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is actually part two of a teaching that when I finally typed out all my notes, it came to 17 pages. And that is called officially a no-no because that will kill people. So I thought instead I would cut it in two and that means I could goof off for the first week that my daughter and her husband are visiting from the Netherlands and they're in the back corner. And this is more fun than a Christian should have in a single day. Fun is so spiritual. We are rejoicing with joy and gladness. So uh, I called the first teaching, You Need a Pastor. And the title of today's teaching is, You Still Need a Pastor. A pastor is God's gift to you, to help you, teach you, and enable you to obtain the eternal glory that God has for you. And a pastor does this by feeding you the Word of God. That's what you need in order to grow, develop, be equipped, and be enabled to do what God is calling you to do, to function as God wants you to function, to be healthy. A pastor also watches out for his people, Um, watches out for wolves, weirdos, false teachers, the next fabulous, wonderful fad that blows through the church occasionally and sets everybody in a tizzy, and this is the new thing of God? Well, a pastor looks out for his people so they don't get caught up in things that do not profit, and moving people away from the main thing, which is Jesus Christ. You know, there is nothing bigger or better than Jesus. There is no new big thing. It's always Jesus. That's why it really struck me this morning as I was reading in Colossians, just my own reading time, how important Jesus is. He is the preeminent one. And so a pastor is going to make sure everybody stays focused on the main issue, which is Jesus, not vaccines, not whatever is blowing through. Everybody can have opinions about all this junk, but you know what? The main thing is Jesus. Now, that's how we started out. We're going to look how a pastor feeds and how he watches out. I'm going to read the whole section to have the context. Here in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So, look what he says there in verse 2. A pastor shepherds the flock of God. And here's something really interesting about that word flock. In the original language, it is a diminutive. It's a word that means something little. Instead of Robert, it's Robbie. Come here, little Robbie. So he might have said, shepherd the little flocky of God. Isn't that interesting? Now, we get the impression that if a pastor is any good at all, he's got to have this big, stonking church. Big church equals good pastor. But here, Peter is saying, take care of God's little flock. And he's really assuming that there aren't that many people. Now, though there are a small number of people, they are not insignificant for that reason. Because they are the flock of God. That is, every single person who trusts in Jesus is God's, not the pastor's. There's not even an arrangement like, okay, you get two and I get one, and you get two and I get one. It's none of that. In fact, even the pastor, since he is a sheep, he belongs to God. Everybody belongs to God. And what that means is that each person is valuable beyond price. Like, there's not an equivalent of how many tons of gold would be equivalent to you. That's ridiculous. There's no way to measure the value that God places upon you because there's no way to measure the value of Jesus. There isn't another Jesus that, okay, there's value in both of them. Every bit of value there is is wrapped up in that person, Jesus. And when he died for each one of us, that puts all of that incalculable price upon us. All of us are priceless beyond words. Nothing to compare. So, you are more valuable to God than the life of his own son. Isn't that crazy? Now, since that is true, every single 
person in the flock of God needs to know that. You have to get that sense that you are valuable to God, that you count. Remember when Jesus gets out of the boat and he looks at all the multitude lined up and they're exhausted, they're thrown down, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He looks at them and they're, they, they're that strung out, discarded, rejected, beat up sheep. So what does he do? He shepherds them. He teaches them. And one of those things that he teaches them is their value before God. Do not fear, little flock. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Tremendous understatement. But that's what people need to know. He says, you know, you come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And that's what he's communicating to the people. The people have to know this. They are the beloved of God. They are precious to him. And a pastor cannot regard anybody in his church as expendable, discardable, worthless. Just like in a family. Pick which child you don't care that much about if you lose them or not. Like, okay, we're coming home from the grocery store. Do we have all the kids? I don't care. Let's just drive, you know? Pick which one you want to lose. No sane parent is going to go there. See? It's not acceptable to lose one. Well, if that's that way in your family, how about the family of God? Is that the way God thinks? Oh, well, it doesn't matter if you lose a few, you know, lop a finger off, gouge out your eye. Who cares? Woo! No way. Not acceptable. So Jesus is the kind of shepherd that if he's got 99 and there's one missing, that bugs the ever-loving daylights out of him. And he's going to leave these guys where it's safe and go off and find that crazy sheep. And when he finds that sheep, oh, oh, he doesn't do that. He picks it up, puts it on his shoulder, says, don't you ever do that again, and walks home. Loves that sheep. If he has to, he'll break its legs. And this is what a shepherd does to keep a sheep from wandering. He breaks that leg, and then he keeps that sheep with him while that leg is mending. So that that sheep learns over the recuperating time, I'm going to stick with my shepherd. See? This is what is known as a severe mercy. If you go that far... If you think it's cool to just bound off, you know, and go away from the shepherd, he can deal with you. Let's just take this one right here. You're going to thank me later, kid. Because he's not going to lose you. And if he has to deal with you severely, he will do it. 
so a pastor has to be the same way for Jesus' sake. And it drives a pastor nuts when people regard even attending a church an optional thing like, oh, I don't know, which way is the wind blowing? Uh, looks like 90% chance of rain. I don't know. I don't even feel good. I don't even want to. Now, a pastor can't go around breaking legs. But boy, pastors sure want to sometimes. But we can't, because it's a bad witness. But you get the idea. Now, a shepherd can only take care of so many people. And if a church does grow, it means that the church has to grow in having pastors to look out for the flock. And so, you know, they have to have their own little flocks, kind of. You know, it's like you got to have contact with people. you got to know where they're at. you got to be able to help them. So that might be a, a condition of this church growing, is that we just have more pastors to look out for more people. But whatever it is, a pastor has to Keep an eye on the flock, that flock of God, which is so precious. Now, notice that he says in verse 2 that the flock of God, which is among you, the pastor is one of the sheep. And a pastor needs to have a relationship with his people. He cannot pastor from afar as the CEO of God.com. He has to know his people. And he needs to know them so that he can pray for them and offload their burdens. Because people can't carry their burdens, and a shepherd can't carry his people's burdens. A shepherd has to move those burdens onto Jesus. He's the only one who can carry those things. So we can't even pray intelligently unless we know what is going on. So yeah, your pastor is going to kind of ask, how's it going? What can I pray for you? And then the people need a relationship with the pastor as well. And this is the interesting thing. You see, as a pastor is among the people, the pastor kind of is himself. And everybody gets to look up close and watch this guy. He's a pastor. You know, he's church cop. He's like right next to God. He's got eyes in the back of his head. He knows. So straighten up. Comb your hair. I'm fine. But then what's he doing? And you know, the interesting thing is if you look real close, you'll find out that your pastor is a guy. And he's just a guy. And he might even be kind of hopeless. Like a real clonk. Like, why did he say that? And why is he kind of lopsided? Because how did this guy get to be a pastor in the first place? I mean, I thought pastors were supposed to be 
perfect. But that's not what it says. It says a pastor is to be blameless. Now, this short circuits a few brains. You know, they go, well, that means perfect, right? Well, if that were the case, then nobody qualifies at all, ever. And nobody can be a pastor. So that can't be the meaning of blameless. I mean, even Paul the Apostle says, I am the chief of sinners. He didn't say, I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. Is he saying he's perfect? Well, he's an apostle. What does blameless mean in the Bible? So, I'm going to say how it is. Deuteronomy 18. I want you to listen to this. You can mark it for later. Deuteronomy 18 from verse 10. Stick with me in this. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. So over here are all these sources of power, wisdom, insight, blessing that are not God. And all the nations resort to these sources of wisdom. Please bless me. Please call up Uncle Ernie from the dead so I can get wisdom. Cast a spell on my boss so that he raises my income. You know what I mean? Manipulate the fabric of reality so I get what I want. God says that is detestable. Don't do that. All the nations do that. That is not your way. But the Lord your God will raise up from among you a prophet like me. You shall listen to him. Now that prophet is Jesus. And you're supposed to listen to him. And as you listen to him, you will be blameless. Because he took upon himself all of our sins. And he died for them. And he rose from the dead. And the one who believes in him has everlasting life. You are made blameless. Not only that. 
The Holy Spirit is working in your life to make you holy progressively so that when you stand before God, before his throne, you will be faultless, blameless. Get that? So a blameless person has rejected all of this worldly, ungodly sources of power and wisdom and is listening to Jesus. And you are blameless. That is the gospel. Does that mean you're perfect? By no means. Now, a pastor is supposed to be an example. An example. People watch a pastor make mistakes. They watch him make a bad decision. I wouldn't do it like that. And then you think, well, how did this guy get to be a pastor anyway? Did he go to seminary? Does he have a seal of approval? Where's his license? Kid, do you have a license to drive this thing? No. What? But remember that a pastor is a sheep of God. He was redeemed with the same blood of Christ as you. He is also infinitely valuable. So that means he is worth a lot more than you think he is. <laughs> Just saying. You know, a pastor has a calling to watch over people and take this call of Jesus very seriously. But, you know, he's no different than everybody else. Do you have difficulties in your life and sins that you have a hard time getting the mastery over? Well, just think, your pastor struggles the same as you. He's just a guy. Now, that's kind of scary on the one hand because you want your surgeon to be better at brain surgery than you are. You expect him to be. But you know, the Bible has a way of leveling us. Every one of us before God is poor in spirit. And we don't have what it takes and sometimes the pastor more than anybody else. Well, what's he doing there then? And the answer is he's getting saved while you're looking. You watch this pathetic guy get saved, and then you know, well, gosh, if he can do it, I can do it. Because I saw him get saved. Look at him. My goodness. The difference is that your pastor was not born with superpowers. Immaculate conception, born sinless. He glows in the dark. No way. What a baby. Obviously, he's a pastor. The difference is that a pastor is called to take his relationship with Jesus very seriously. Like every word in this book applies to me. I believe that. 
And you know what that does is produces a godly fear in me. I'm going to stand before God and give an account of my ministry. How do I want to do that? Humbly. And that means right now, I want God in my life. I want God to set me apart as holy. I want Him to pour out His Spirit on me. I need His love in my heart. I want to grow in Jesus. See? Now you watch all that, and you watch what it does in my life, and you might think, I wish I had that. I wish I had that insight and that life, and I want to do the same thing. That's what I did. I watched my pastor, and I thought, this guy knows God, and I want to know God like he does. Like he really knew his Bible, and I thought that was cool. And one day I saw him with an exhaustive concordance, this book is about. And I said, what is that? He says, oh, it's an exhaustive concordance. I go, what's that? He says, well, it's got every word in the Bible, and it's all keyed to the original language, so you can look up a word and find out what it is in the Greek. And I flipped through it, and he says, yeah, here's every occurrence of this word in the whole New Testament, or in the Old Testament. And I go, wow, that's cool. Can I have one of those? Is that, is that like okay? He goes, oh, yeah. You can have one of these just like me. I go, wow. So I went out and got one. I thought, wow, I've got one too. And I still have it. I thought, I get to have this. I get to know God. So I watched my pastor. One time I went into my pastor and I confessed a sin to him. And I thought actually the heavens were going to open and the, the brimstone and fire was going to come down from God. Because I, I was going to confess my sin and just say, you know what, I don't know what to do about this. And my pastor told me about his sins. And it blew my mind. I thought, he's a guy. And he struggles. And he's a pastor. And he's secure in the grace of God. Wow, and my respect for him went up 3,000%. I didn't think, gosh, what a lunkhead. I'm better than he is. I just thought, he has the power to be real in front of me, and he's not destroyed, and he knows the grace of God. That means I can know the grace of God. Wow, wow. See, it's, it's amazing to watch a guy get saved and think, man, I get to get saved too. Just Joe Lunkhead, me. I get to get saved too, for real, and I know I'm getting saved, because man, if he's getting saved, <laughs> I'm getting saved too. But see, doesn't that free you up a little bit? And that's what it's supposed to do. Because we have a really small view of the grace of God. And we just think, man, I'm failing by the boatload. I am such a failure. 
And what God wants to communicate to us is his grace is so big, so amazing, and all of it is pointed right at you. And he's going to get you saved. A hundred percent, all of you in heaven. He's going to get you there. And you can know this is real because you're looking at your pastor. And if that pinhead is getting saved, by gum, so will you. So a pastor has to be among his people so they can see that he's a guy. This is why you don't put your pastor up on a pedestal and treat him different. Because he's a guy. Now, you just treat him like one of the guys and love him just like you love everybody else. Do you get that? A pastor is one of the guys. So how does a pastor lead and use authority? These are the dirty words, right? Authority. Leadership. Which equate nowadays to oppression and control. But he, Peter says here in verse 2, serving as overseers. And that just means somebody who watches over. Um, the word there is the Greek word from which we get the English word episcopal, which just means to watch over. And we think of like, you know, a bishop with the robes and the hat and all that kind of thing. But it just means somebody who watches over, which is what a shepherd is. So Peter is not saying be a powerful executive in God.com. He's just saying, watch over the church. And he says, do it not by compulsion, but willingly. Compulsion is where you're forced to do something against your will. You have to do this. Do it. But, you know, God does come to you, and he calls you with authority. There's no doubt about that. You don't vote yourself into being a pastor. He does have to call you. And God called me. But what he does is he calls a pastor, and then he gives them to the church, and you do this willingly. When Jesus called Peter, he said, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Now, Peter did not feel adequate or sufficient. He didn't feel like he would do all that good a job. In fact, he felt like a failure. He had denied Jesus three times. You want me to work for you? Really? Are you serious? Well, do you love me? So what do you do? Is he okay? I'll do it. I'm not perfect, but you're asking me, and I love you. Maybe this much, not drawn to scale. It's pitiful, but yes, I do love you. So I'm willing, and this is the key thing. I'm willing for God to enable me, 
and to use me as I am. When I started out, I thought, you know, I wish I were 60 years old and I've been doing this for 40 years. Wouldn't that be great? So you walk onto the scene. I'm 60 and I have 40 years of experience and I know what to do and I feel pretty good about myself. But you don't get to do that. You start out where you are and you're willing to learn. You're willing to be used even though you're not worthy. You're willing to do whatever God wants. And then as a pastor, you embody that willingness so everybody looks at that and says, he's into it, he's willing. That's how you serve God. Because it's a tremendous privilege to serve Jesus in doing whatever. That's why a pastor does whatever. If he has to clean a toilet, he cleans a toilet. If he has to take out the rubbish, take out the rubbish. Anything, everything. Kind of like the Japanese golf caddy. I actually read some Golf Digest magazine while I was in a waiting room and looked at Caddy of the Month. And (laughs) I was desperate for some reading material. And I was interested because this guy caddies for a Japanese golf pro. And the question is, what won't you do for your golf pro? And he says, nothing. Anything he wants, I do it. If he wants soy sauce on his eggs in the morning, I go out and find that soy sauce. (laughs) And you know what that means is he's willing. He's willing. And you just say, you know what? I'll never be worthy or feel sufficient to serve God, but I'm willing because I look at my pastor, and he's willing. And this is the very attitude of Jesus in Psalm 40. It says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Now, it says here, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Dishonest gain is not only money, but it can refer to things like gaining recognition, fame, prominence for even being a good teacher. That's not what you're in it for. You don't want to use the ministry to serve your own personal goals. Now, there is one well-known pastor who used church money to buy up copies of his book Enough copies so that it would be regarded as a New York Times bestseller. And then because it was certified New York Times bestseller, he could put that on all his books. New York Times bestselling author Mark Driscoll. And then somebody wandered into the church warehouse and found box after box after box after box of books. And it came out. And what was really weird is to find out that a lot of pastors do this. 
So a lot of pastors end up on the New York Times bestseller list. He just got caught. Didn't think it was a big deal. But that's not what the ministry is for. You know that when he was discovered, all of his books were pulled from the biggest retailer in the United States, and all the churches that he had founded disappeared in six months. All of that fabulous ministry just... Everybody who was in those churches were blown up, devastated. How do you trust a leader after that? How do you trust anybody? See, this stuff is devastating. But you know, instead of doing it for yourself, you do it for God. You're enthusiastic for God. You do it for His sake. That's why you pastor. You're not asking, what can I get out of this? What's in it for me? You take care of God's little flock. It's about God's glory, God's fame, His benefit, and this is the attitude of Jesus. It says of Him, zeal for your house has consumed me. Not zeal for my house. Pastor like that, says Peter. And then he says, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And it's really interesting that Jesus' disciples had this tendency to want to lord it over everybody else. I mean, they're always fighting about who's the greatest. And Master, we want to sit on your left hand and your right when you come into your kingdom. Can you drink my cup? Oh, yeah. Sure, no sweat. Whatever. What's a cup? <laughs> you know, this is just our big chance to get into the ground floor, be up there, and then get all the perks. And he says, no. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So you know what Jesus did? They're all sitting around the table, and he gets up and fills up a basin with water, girds himself with a towel, and washes their feet. How'd you like to have the Messiah wash your feet? Well, Jesus said, you know, I've done this for you as an example, so that as I have done to you, you should do it to others. So the whole point in all this is a pastor is supposed to be an example of this. He's supposed to wash people's feet. That is, get down and do whatever. Be a servant, not a lord. Making people's lives better. You know why? Because everybody is supposed to be making everybody's lives better. This is what it means when it says love one another. It means look around the room, look for a need, Fill that need. Make somebody's life better. That's what it means to love one another. Not sing, I love you with the love of my Lord, and then look in people's eyes and get all embarrassed. You ever had that happen to you in a church? 
You're going to sing, I love you with the love of my Lord, and then you're supposed to look at people. So you look at them, and you go, okay, I'll do this, but this is really embarrassing. Don't do that. You know what you do? Look for somebody who needs something, and then do it for them. That's loving them. Make their lives better. The whole body is supposed to do this. And then look. Your pastor is growing. You're looking at him so that you want to grow. And everybody's growing. Everybody's loving one another, serving one another. Everybody is headed towards that eternal glory. Together, everybody's going for it. And see, this is the reward of a pastor, is glory. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. You know why? Because the pastor is not thinking about himself. He's helping everybody else get where they need to be. So that everybody else doesn't think about themselves and gets everybody else where they need to be. Everybody wins. Everybody gets the crown of glory. This is what a church is supposed to be about. The pastor is just the guy who's laying down his life and saying, this is how you do it. Watch me. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So, the chief shepherd, he's going to appear because he suffered already and he entered into his glory. A pastor is suffering now. A church is suffering now. The whole point is we will enter into our glory. So just because Jesus suffered and entered into his glory, that's the promise that we all will do that. And it's suffering first, and it's glory later. Everybody has to be okay with that. So, again, you need a pastor. This is one of the takeaways. It's not an option. You need a pastor. If not here, then somewhere else. But you need a pastor because you need somebody to look at and say, I want to end up like him. It's an encouragement. It's a gift to you. If you don't want a pastor, that means you're saying, I don't want God's gifts. I don't want help. Well, what do you want? You know? It's like you open up the gift. Wow. Uh, do I need this? I never actually thought about wanting one of these before. Looks like I got one now. Maybe I can charity shop this thing. But actually, you know, if a pastor is a gift of God to you to enable you to reach glory, that could be pretty valuable, don't you think? And if you miss out on that, you're going to make it that much tougher to obtain eternal glory. So you need a pastor. Do you know your pastor? Does he know you? You really do need a relationship with your pastor. Now, you need a good pastor, like Peter, like Paul, 
like Jesus, a pastor who will lay down his life for the flock, not a bad pastor who makes the flock lay their lives down for him. So that's how you know if you've got a good pastor or a bad pastor. How does he shepherd? Does he skin the sheep and eat their flesh? Or does he lay down his life for the flock? You should be able to see that. It should not take rocket science. Now, because you know what a good pastor ought to look like, then you can pray for the pastor that you already have that he looks more and more like that good pastor because he's on the way. He's not there yet. So you can give your pastor mercy because that's the rule. Everybody gives everybody mercy. Everybody loves everybody or else. That's the rule. So, the better your pastor gets, the better you get. Isn't that great? Everybody wins. Now, what I think is interesting is we can pray for some more pastors so that we can grow as a church. We don't have to grow. You know, in the Calvary Chapel movement, there are actually way more small churches than big churches. And you go to these pastors' conferences, and the guys have mega churches. And you think you're broken if you don't have a big church. But it turns out something like 80% of all the Calvary chapels in the world are very small churches. So you know what? The Word of God is actually showing us that it's more the case that we will be a small church. But who cares? Because... When you're talking about eternal things, size is not an issue. Weight is not an issue. But it's things like love, mercy, forgiveness. See? And there's no act of love that is insignificant. Ever. Ever. Even if you give a cup of cold water to a child in the name of Jesus, Jesus said, I say to you, you will not lose your reward. So every act of love is eternally significant, no matter how big. And if we play Let It Go for Sienna May, <laughs> see, we're doing something of eternal significance because we want to love that family. We want to love the neighborhood. That is eternally significant. And some people in this room might be called to be a pastor, at least an elder, one who can teach and feed. The terms are really interchangeable. But, you know, that's a good thing. That's not to be, oh, no, I hope I don't get called, you know. <laughs> Death sentence. And the rest of us go, Whew. You know, you know it, is, it is a privilege to serve the Lord Jesus. It is a privilege to die with Jesus, 
and to rise from the dead with him and to be revealed with him in glory. It is a privilege. However he calls you, that's fabulous. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be willing. Willing for him to make you the person that he wants you to be. Does everybody hear my voice? Just be willing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are good. That you give good gifts to your people. And we acknowledge your word that a pastor is a good thing. And we have all, I think, benefited from pastors. We, we thank you so much for the pastors we've known. And what can we say? We, we pray that you would be our chief shepherd, that you would bless the pastor, that you would bless other men that you are raising up to be pastors, and you're calling, and you're saying, you know what? I want you to take this seriously. I want you to read your words seriously. I want you to take it seriously. But we do pray that you would make this a church that you could use greatly in whatever way you want. Make us a church of people who love each other. We commit ourselves to you and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.